Today's very special Memorial Day episode of the Velnies Podcast brought to you by our good friends over at Canyon Bicycles and their new Canyon Grail gravel bike. Uh, Canyon is sponsoring us on our 2019 Gravel Adventure Series. Chris, Spencer, maybe even myself, are going to be taking in some of the best gravel races aboard the Canyon Grail. Now, look, you've probably seen photos or heard of the Canyon Grail. It has this radical handlebar cockpit, the carbon handlebar that looks like a biplane from World War I. Well, this design helps eliminate some of the chatter, a lot of the bumps that you get in these gravel races, and it just saves your body, especially your arms and shoulders, so you have some more strength towards the end of a big long gravel race. And you know, that, that comes in handy, something like the Dirty Kanza, 205 miles of pedaling. And actually this coming weekend, Spencer will be racing Dirty Kanza aboard at Canyon Grail. And we're gonna have him back on the podcast to catch up to see how the race went. So thanks to Canyon for sponsoring this week's episode of the Vela News Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Vail News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here on a Monday morning. It's Memorial Day. You probably are all out having a barbecue or riding your bicycles or doing some fun outdoor activity where I am just slaving away here at the Vail News World Headquarters. For you, for all the good listeners, because I want you to have a wonderful podcast this week. Uh, I got barbecue plans later, but uh, figured I'd sneak in here this morning because it was the only day to catch up with my good buddy Andy Hood over at the rest day, uh, the second rest day of the Giro d'Italia. And uh, Andy, uh, first question, how is your Memorial Day going? Are you barbecuing right now? Or are you like sitting poolside with a margarita getting ready to enjoy your day off? Uh, Fred, I wish that was the case. We are up here in the place called Cusone, which is uh, above the start of Tuesday stage. It's a soggy day. It's been rainy, cold, and damp all day. And they don't have Memorial Day in, in Italy, at least as far as I know. They have the Workers' Day, which I think is May 1st, and they'll have their own little different celebrations. But uh, not today, not on Memorial Day. It is a rest day, which means uh, press conferences and usually driving around uh, like almost any rest day. It's usually almost more work than, than a normal stage. Oh, that's too bad. I'm just envisioning at the Giro, like everyone having to go out and like mow the lawn and throw some ribs on the barbecue and have a relaxing day, maybe watch some sports. Uh, but no, you guys are just battling foul weather like you've been doing. It seems like throughout this entire uh, Giro d'Italia. Well, we have a great episode today. We're going to talk with Andy about the exciting uh, previous week of the Giro d'Italia and the final week coming up. We're going to talk about all the storylines, Primoz Roglic, P-breaks, um, all that good stuff. Then we're going to talk a bit about uh, a big race coming up this coming weekend. That, of course, the Dirty Kanza, uh, the uh, America's gravel racing uh, World Series Super Bowl Stanley Cup finals NBA playoffs rolled into one um, and then finally we're going to hear from a gravel racer Colin Strickland about the Dirty Kanza about gravel in general about how gravel really changed his career trajectory and has given him a, uh, a place in the pro cycling universe even though he's a guy he's a day jobber who uh isn't that different from you and me? Well, okay, maybe he's a bit bit stronger than you and me. But before we get to all the gravel talk, 
Hoodie, let's get back to it. We've had a, uh, just a week ago, you and I were talking, we're lamenting about how the opening week of the Giro was boring, how it was just bad weather, long stages, everyone was complaining. And in the last five days, this Giro d'Italia has roared to life with summit finishes, badly timed mechanicals, crashes, and yes, a very uh, ill-timed pee break on the end of Yumbo Visma sport director Addy Engels and his driver. Uh, where, where are we right now with the Giro d'Italia? Yesterday we had the stage Tacomo. Give me a rundown of all the excitement that happened yesterday. It really has finally kicked off on this Giro, Fred. You got that right. And you got real lucky with the weather over this past weekend. The, the forecast has been for rain and even snow up in, the, in those really first big mountain stages, and it didn't come to fruition. Uh, unfortunately, we saw the forecast for this coming week, and the Giro organizers had to pull the plug on the Gavia as part of Tuesday's stage. But, man, it really started to go off already on, on the stage. On Thursday, it was kind of just a little test of a climb, a little cat one towards the sharp end of that stage. And, man, we got a real preview right there on that stage of what lay in store for the rest of this Giro. And what we see, we saw everything just start to unfold right there. We saw Roglic denuded of teammates on the first climb. We saw Movistar come to life. We saw some uh, bad luck on the on the side of uh, Miguel Angel Lopez. We saw Nibali kind of becoming this old grumpy guy of the Peloton, complaining and uh, moaning about everybody. And, uh, you know, we'll see if that kind of backfires for Nibs coming into the final week. But, man, finally the Giro took off. It, it took it was on a slow boil, but things have finally heated up. <laughs> I love Nibali, the grumpy quote machine. Um, we can get into that later, but I just want to raise my hand and say that I love this edition of Vincenzo Nibali telling Primoz Roglic that he can come over to his house anytime he likes to look at his trophy case, um, saying that Primoz is not riding like a Grand Tour champion and not chasing down the moves, and just all around being a grumpy old man. I think he's really finding his place. Like, you know, at the back half of uh, Contador, Alberto Contador's um, career, he was the crazy attack chaos man who would just light it up at weird times in the race. And I would love for nothing more than Vincenzo Nibali to become that man, but then also to become just the press conference quote machine because, ah, you just put that in contrast to Roglic who just doesn't say anything. Like, thank God we have Nibali here throwing some uh, some word barbs out there. Yeah, a little pepper in the sauce is always good at any Giro d'Italia. And in fact, yesterday at the finish line, uh, Alberto Contador was, was walking around and he and Nibali had a few words after the stage, and Nibali said he was inspired by Contador, especially like the way you said, the way Contador finished out his career, just attacking without really uh, caring about the implications other than trying to win the race. Sometimes, you know, we also often see these Grand Tours kind of uh, dissolve into uh, preserving a third place, preserving a fifth place, cons- conserving a, a, a top spot on GC. But Nibali said yesterday, he took inspiration from Contador, said, the only thing that matters to me in this Giro is winning it. And it's true. He's won two Giros. He's won a, a, a Welta and a, a Tour de France. So I think Nibali is going to be swinging for the fences. And he's been looking very strong. I don't. And we saw some fireworks yesterday, Nibali really going into attack over that final climb and, and gapping out uh, Roglic and only Karapas could go with him. So that we're going to see in, in these next uh, coming days in this Giro d'Italia because we still have four mountain stages to go. 
So I think the big talking point right here is about Roglic. So Roglic, the man who came into this Giro as one of the odds-on favorites, took the Malia Rosa, is the best time trialist left of the bunch, is still, in my eyes, the favorite to win the race. Uh, it rode amazingly, strongly, wisely, smartly through the first week and a half of this race. And then, as you said, in the last five days, we've been seeing weaknesses on the part of both Roglic, mostly Roglic's team, um, on the first uphill finish. You know, boy, the pace starts going on these hills and all of Jumbo Visma's domestiques are just blown out the back. On the uh, Friday's summit finish, uh, you know, Jumbo Visma was setting the pace over the penultimate climb. And then all of a sudden, Astana wanted to uh, up the pace and uh, Bilbao went to the front and then boom, Visma guys are gonzo. And then finally, yesterday on the crazy stage Tacoma, which took in a lot of the terrain of the Giro de Lombardia, we finally saw um, Roglic's, the, you know, the fact that he's isolated really nip, you know, really come back and bite him in the butt, which is Roglic had a mechanical problem uh, on this beautiful winding road on the banks of Lake Como. He had no teammates with him and his team car was at the back of the bunch because his directors had to take a pee and the next thing you know, he's standing on the side of the road, loses contact with the group, and thankfully for him, his teammate Antoine Tolhook, who had been dropped, uh, caught back up, saw him there, surrendered his bicycle, and Roglic was able to pedal on on the bicycle that wasn't his. But, you know, he lost, boy, 40 seconds to Simon Yates, 25 seconds or so to Miguel Angel Lopez, uh, yeah, another 40 seconds or so to Vincenzo Nibali, it's this moment where, you know, the fact that Roglic is maybe the strongest but has one of the weaker GC teams really bit him in the butt. And I'm curious, on your end, Hoodie, I mean, is that something people are talking about? Is that what the teams are talking about? Is it that glaring for everyone to see that Roglic has a weak team? Oh, it's certainly glaring. Uh, I think the, the team that's taken the most advantage of that, of course, is Movistar. They saw straight away in that first stage on Thursday, if you wind back to that first mountain climb, that's when uh, Lopez, Superman Lopez and Landa did this long bomb, attacked over that Cat 1. And suddenly in the GC bunch, Roglic was completely alone, no helpers. This is the first mountain climb of the entire Giro d'Italia. And the, the presumed favorite, the virtual leader, had no teammates. So that was a huge red flag for everybody else in the Peloton. It's like when the sharks are out and there's blood in the water, you know, look out. So they've been going after Roglic, picking away at him really the last three or four days. And like you said, it was kind of those uh, – he's been kind of lucky because even on that first stage Thursday into Pinarolo, he was alone in the GC group chasing back in the final 20K. And everyone's speculating, well, that was a smart move. He just called his guys off and let him rest up for these big battles coming up in the Alps. And it's like no way are those guys with those guys being called off because just like we saw yesterday, if you're alone and you need a wheel change, you need a bike, and you don't have a teammate there. Sure, you can jump on the Shimano neutral bike, but that's not what you want in this last moment of a race. So that's been a huge uh, kind of big hole really in Rolich's uh, Giro so far. Has a strong team for the flats. We saw he protected his lead all the way through the, these big time trial gains, but then it's just dismantled rather quickly in these three or four first mountain stages of this Giro and Movistar has taken full advantage of that. They played, you know, they've been criticized in the past of being conservative, but when you're far behind, you have to race aggressively. Oftentimes 
You know, uh, Naira Quintana has been their favorite guy, protected rider, usually been quite close on the GC. And but in this in this zero scenario, you had both Landa and Carl Paz who lost you know a lot of time really in those first two time trials. So they had no choice but to attack. And so they've been able to kind of exploit the couple of factors. First, that Roglic doesn't really have a team around him in the mountains, and plus Roglic and Nibali kind of have this little war between them. Roglic has obviously been marking uh, Nibali's wheel in all these past three, four stages. And of course, you have to remember that this team, Jumbo Visma, uh, doesn't really have the experience of winning a Grand Tour. And if you recall a couple of years ago, 2016, when Nibali attacked over the Agnello climb, that's when Kweiswick, when it was uh, Lotto, Jumbo, and L, whatever the name was back in the day, forgive me for not remembering off the top of my head, that's when Kweiswick kind of panicked and ran into the snowbank, and that really set off Nibali's great comeback from that 2016. So you have all of these kind of layers coming together, and Roglic, you know, he's been on this roll this whole spring, winning all these uh, one-week stage races, but you're seeing really managing a three-week Grand Tour is something quite different than following the wheels in a one-week stage race. Yeah, you think back to him losing his teammate Lawrence Duplus during that first week, and Duplus was this great climbing Belgian who I, I know I had written about him being the, you know, the number one lieutenant for Roglic at this tour. I mean, he was so strong at UAE tour, really strong at Tirreno Adriatico, and to lose him that early in the Giro, um, huge loss for him. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the results right now, and it seems like all of the GC teams have multiple riders that they can, multiple strong riders, except for Jumbo Visma. So even Astana has Jan Izaguirre, um, has obviously Miguel Angel Lopez, Dario Cataldo, guys who are doing really great. Um, Nibali, he has Domenico Pozzo Vivo. He has a couple different lieutenants who we've seen make it up into the front group in some of these climbing stages. Um, I mean, he, you looked even Bora Hansgro with Davide Formolo and Rafael Micah. You, know, you look at the front group in some of these stages and you're just seeing two, three riders from some of these GC teams and you see one man in yellow and that's poor, poor Primoz Roglic. So, I mean, whether or, you know, whether or not Roglic can survive being isolated, to me, is the big story to follow through this final week of the Giro. And, you know, I think that that's really important because when we look at the stages coming up and, and you know, the fact that, okay, we don't have the Gavia anymore, but this Tuesday stage 16, some are saying that it might actually be harder now because they've put some steeper, crazier climbs in as opposed to the long brutish climb up the Gavia. Hoodie, you've been on the ground talking to people. Um, first of all, take me through the last week of discussions around whether or not they were going to have the Gavia. It sounds, you know, it sounds like at, at one point it was on, then it was off. What's been the storyline around this decision? Yeah, uh, Venny, the, the race Giro director, came uh, into the press room on Saturday evening and made the announcement that the Gavia will be taken out of the race. Uh, it was slowly building uh, over the course of the last week, Fred, you're right, because the main problem really was just how much snow there was up there, right? I mean, they're talking three or four meters of snow. You've seen some of the photos online of uh, just huge banks of snow that they've been plowing through. And they also have the big problem up there really was the avalanches because they could get the snow off the road. But the big worry was with some of this uh, uh, uneven weather that it might trigger another avalanche. And of course, you know, the worst case scenario is having an avalanche during the actual race. But the main worry was an avalanche would come down and bury the road again, maybe just even the day before the race. 
obviously no time to clear the road out. That was one of the big concerns. And then, of course, just the safety of the riders. The uh, the weather's still bad. I mean, it's been raining here all day. We're still quite low elevation. You know, the top of the of the Gavia is over uh, 8,000 feet. So, you know, that rain turns to snow at that elevation and it freezes overnight. So the big worry was, yeah, the, the road actually might be pa- passable for cars, but really unsafe for riders to, to climb up in it as well, of course, to descend. You know, you don't hit a, 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 an icy patch or even just, you know, wet, melting snow on the roads is so treacherous at that at that speed. So I think they made the right call. It's the only call they really could make. And you're right, they've included these two smaller climbs, uh, the Chevo climb and the Aprica climb. The Aprica climb people are quite familiar with. It's kind of, it's usually an approach they'll often take going into the backside of the Mortarola, which they're doing. Or also, that also leads up into the Bormio onto the northern approach of the Gavia as well as the Stelvio. So the Aprica is not really a new climb, but it does kind of have a little kicker there as it goes above the town, a little narrow stretch of road. And this Chevo climb, they're both only Cat 3 climbs, nothing that these guys can't handle. But the big speculation is now is that it will be raced much more aggressively at a Cat 3, where I think the Chevo climb is maybe only four or five kilometers long, but it's quite spiky. So this is, you know, you'll be racing a lot harder up a five, six, you know, that's a, a 15, 20 minute effort as opposed to the Gavia, which is this big monster climb that everyone was really worried about. And that almost has an effect of uh, neutralizing the race because to get up and over and down the Gavia in one piece, no one's going to really uh, do a bomb attack over that and really disrupt the, it was really more of a race of attrition at that point. So now the scenario is you're going to have a lot more aggressive and dynamic racing going towards what is the Mortirolo. And everyone knows that, we're, you know, it'll be coming up from the, the, the steep northern side, which starts at a lower elevation, is steeper and longer, and then has that really nasty descent down into that valley leading toward the uh, the uh, Ponte de Legno. So the dynamic really is for a much more aggressive, wide-open stage tomorrow, and the weather's not looking good. It's going to be cold and rainy. So I think it could be one of these epic Giro stages and everything is completely going to blow up. Uh, there was an amazing photo posted online this morning of a group of riders who rode their mountain bikes and cyclocross bikes up to the top or near the top of the Gavia, and they are surrounded on all sides by these like 20-foot walls of snow. There's a ton of snow on the ground. It looks completely awful and unpassable. And the whole time when I was looking at this photo, I was just like, uh, Andy Hampston must be someplace warm being like, hold my beer. Yeah, yeah. There, there's been some comments out there that uh, you know today's today's uh, concern for safety, which I think is rightly so. You know, I mean, you can't put these guys in, in unsafe conditions. I mean, racing is unsafe as it is still today, especially with all the traffic furniture and some of the stuff, the roads the guys have to race on these days, and just how much faster the peloton's going in general. Uh, I think they made the right call on this. I don't think it's going to change the outcome of the stage that much, simply because. You know, it wasn't the, the final climb. It wasn't the summit finale. You still got the Mortirolo. That was going to hammer that stage anyway. That's still there. That's not going to change anything. So I think tomorrow is going to be a, a really a, a huge stage. I think we'll see a few of the riders blowing. I mean, the big, the big question mark is going to be Roglic. You know, can he, the day after the rest day, without teammates, knowing that everyone's gunning for him, can he withstand the pressure tomorrow? And when you talk to Roglic, he's a, he's a hard guy to read. He's not very expressive doesn't give very much away. He's been saying everything is just fine. Uh, I mean, yesterday rattled him a little bit. I think he had that crash on the descent 
you know, he came off the bus, he had some cuts and scrapes on his face, but he came at, made a little joke and said, Hey, good thing. I don't have to pedal with my face. So, <laughs> so that was uh real trying to be funny, but he is, uh, he is, uh, he has been handling it relatively calmly so far, but there's been a few situations where it's, I think it's been obvious where he doesn't quite know how to handle the, 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 the changing dynamics on the road in the stage race, just by letting car pause, uh, right away on the stage on Friday, right? So everyone talks about what happened Saturday when Carapaz just rode right away, won the stage, took the pink jersey. But really, when you look back on Friday's stage, that's when that's when Nibali was getting mad at Roglic because Carapaz just rode away, took back almost took back a minute and a half, almost all the gains that uh, that he that Roglic had taken on Carapaz in the San Marino time trial. He just took it back by a little uh, punchy attack at the end of the stage, and Roglic just let him ride away. And that's where I think he might have lost the race right there because it's one thing to let Carapaz win a stage, take some time back. You know, you can't follow down every attack and every 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 move. But two days in a row, he let Carapaz just come right back into the race. And that's, I think, will prove to be a fatal mistake to Roglic. Yeah, you mentioned him there, uh, Richard Carapaz of Movie Star. I think that a lot of us lo- had our eyes on uh, Mika Landa coming in as the leader of Movie Star. But uh, Carapaz, who was, you know, I-, I think he was co-leader coming in, great climber. He's a South American. He's from the Andes. But, you know, Hoodie, you've written about Carapaz before. What can you tell us? about this guy, his strengths, and just the significance of him leading the Giro right now. Yeah, he has an interesting backstory. Um, there was an interesting report today on, on an Ecuadorian website that uh, had some photos and videos of uh, Carapaz's family and where they live. I mean, he lives, where Carapaz lives is higher than the Gavia. So, so just imagine how high this guy, you know, what he has just being born at that altitude the advantage he has. In fact, uh, I was talking to the sport director yesterday at Movistar and say, they're saying that, you know, they were kind of the losers in the scenario of the Gavia not being in the race because Carapaz is the guy who would benefit from having such a high mountain stage, altitude stage in the Giro. But he comes from a really modest, quite, you know, uh, farming family. Um, just from what you can glean from some of the reports that, uh, you know, perhaps even a more modest upbringing than even Nairo Quintana much has been made about uh, about Quintana's backstory, fascinating as it is. But, you know, Quintana's family at least they had like a little shop where they could get some cash and they had, you know, some some kind of way to – they had a truck that his dad could drive and sell vegetables. Whereas it looks like uh, Carapaz's family really were just, uh, you know, they're farmers. They had chickens. They have, uh, you know, you know they're just kind of living close to the ground. So the stories of these guys coming out of these countries, you know, it's really just fascinating to see how far they can come. And that, you know, they really kind of harkens back to the day of the, of the, of the French and Belgians coming out of the coal mines and out of the factories, you know, of, of a century ago. You know, it's so different than the mindset we have of the modern rider coming out of Australia with all the science and technology or the United States and the UK. Uh, a lot of the writers have college educations and they're with the cutting edge uh, nutrition and technology and the bikes and everything. And these guys are really coming really out of, uh, you know, much more modest financial backgrounds. And that, I think, just gives them an extra gear when it comes to racing. You know, they're suffering not just to win a race, but they're suffering really to lift their family perhaps out of poverty. And uh, I think that's going to give them that extra little bit of grit 
when it's raining tomorrow, when it's cold and maybe you've crashed and, and uh, you can't see the road. And, you know, that's what I think really makes a difference in these bike races is when you can just dig down deep inside and really suffer. And that's where I think a guy like Kyle Poss could have the edge. I think it's interesting that we have another amazing uh, you know, climber coming out of a different Andean nation in Colombia. I mean, uh, Ecuador, very high altitude place. Um, and and I'm, I'm hopeful that Carapaz can help seed a uh, cycling culture in uh, Ecuador. I, don't, I cannot remember another Ecuadorian cyclist making it into the world tour. Forgive me if I'm leaving out any names, but I just think that this is also part of the wider storyline of the globalization of the sport and how uh, big champions and big stars in non-traditional cycling markets can, over time, grow a cycling tradition and a cycling culture there. So maybe it's a case where 10, 15 years from now, we're going to see a whole crop of Ecuadorian climbers lighten up the world tour. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, uh, Carapaz has a little cycling school kind of academy that he started up in, in his region where he's backing, you know, junior riders, trying to get them on bikes, giving them a chance to race. Because Carapaz, he really is kind of, uh, even though he's Ecuadorian, he's really kind of, uh, his DNA is almost really comes through Colombian cycling. Mm. When he was, uh, he lives quite close to the Colombian border and when he started to race his bike and, and started to get some kind of, you know, pretty good results, he was he was able to kind of just go across the border uh, into Colombia, hook up with a Colombian junior team that was active, uh, that got him into the Colombian racing scene. I mean, the Colombian racing scene uh, at the junior level is probably anything comparable to, I'd say, what you see really in Belgium or Italy, where you have clubs in every kind of town or region that have their own little local racing series and that feeds into this larger um, kind of network of uh, development races. And that's where Kyle Paz really got his start. He got into a Colombian team, raced, on the, raced in the junior tour of Colombia. They had a little stage race down there. He did well in that. And so he was very early on really into the Colombian kind of uh, development system. So even though he's Ecuadorian by passport, he is almost Colombian really in his development and background. And then he got hooked in with um, Zoo. It was telling me that uh, one of the guys that kind of tipped him off to Carapaz was Oscar Sevilla, the uh, Spanish racer. And I kind of got his fingers caught in the cookie jar back there a few years ago. And he's been racing and living in Colombia now since, well, since those days. And uh, so he kind of is a conduit for some of the Spanish teams saying, hey, you know, watch out for this guy, watch out for this guy. And got tipped off to Carapaz. And Carapaz was uh, linked up with uh, Lizarte, which is like kind of a development team in the Basque country that uh, that uh, Movistar is linked up with. And so they've, they've been having a relationship with Carapaz dating back to when he was a U23 rider. And Carapaz has been working with a Basque uh, trainer, a female trainer, one of the few female coaches and trainers in professional cycling is uh, Carapaz's, uh, uh, you know, lead uh, mentor. So interesting backstory. But you can just tell, man, this guy, he's got, uh, he's got, you know, good head on his shoulders when it comes to racing, but also very strong in character. Well, lots of great storylines to follow through this final week of the Giro. When we link up next, we will know the outcome of the Giro d'Italia, and we'll have plenty to hash over about how, oh, Roglic was delayed because his team was actually at a 7-Eleven buying snacks and uh, Carapaz, uh, you know, climbed away from everybody and put 14 minutes in the Peloton. And Nibali 
called everyone in the Peloton a baby. But Jiro, man, that's just a, that's just a sideshow compared to the big race we have coming up here in the USA. That, of course, being the Dirty Kanza Gravel Racing's biggest day, uh, 205 miles of dusty, gravelly racing across the Flint Hills of Kansas. Hoodie, you have undoubtedly heard of this Dirty Kansas once or twice before. I was there last year. If, do, you, do you have any questions for me? What do you want to know uh, about this big, bad, hard gravel race? Yeah, this, this, this is such a cool event. I mean, uh, just tell me the backstory on this, Fred. I mean, uh, gravel racing is the new trendy thing the last couple of years, but this has been knocking around for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, this thing's been around since 2006, and it's a story that I've heard a few times now in the the gravel movement, but also just the movement around these, just the new format of racing in America, which is mass participant, open roads, um, sort of races that are more about adventures and experience than like cat three upgrade points or whatever. And that's really humble beginnings. It was 2006 and some organizers uh, wanted to have their own gravel adventure, really long distance gravel adventure to mimic the um, trans Iowa race. And they just went out and rode into these dirt roads, which are, you know, farm roads, rolling hills. It's windy. It's June. So it's pretty hot. And uh, they, when they finished, it took them, you know, 15, 16 hours. They ate pizza, and that was it. And the lead organizer, Jim Cummins, he was there that day. He did not finish, but he had the vision of trying to grow this thing into a big mass participant event. So he kept putting it on year after year. And as you hear with a lot of these gravel races, you know, the first year you have 30 people, the next year you have 60, then it's 80, then it's 100. And at some point, it gained critical mass. And uh, starting 2013, 2014, the thing started selling out, you know, 1,000 people, 1,500, 2,000. Now they cap it at, I believe, 2,200. There's a lottery to get in. People from all over the world have heard about it. They want to do it. And the attraction, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, you probably heard our Dirty Kansas episode last year. It's, it's not a race so much as it is a personal challenge like you see with Ironman triathlons, ultra distance running, where just to finish it is an accomplishment because it's really, really brutal. Um, last year, the weather was quote unquote good in that it didn't rain and there wasn't mud, but um, riders faced a really stiff headwind for 100 miles all the way back. I heard these stories of people you know, saying, oh, I've had my head down going as hard as I can go looking at into this block headwind, looking at my speedometer that says, you know, eight, nine miles an hour for the last nine hours. I mean, just just misery. And so to to finish it is this personal achievement. No one has a perfect race. Everyone has a puncture or, uh, you know, they bonk or some type of setback out there. And so everyone crosses the finish line with a story. A lot of people are having emotional moments. And it's the type of experience you just don't get at a traditional race. And so, yeah, dirty, you know, it, it's been at the forefront of this gravel movement where I'm sure you've, you've heard about this hoodie where everyone is buying gravel bikes like the Canyon Grail and going out and punishing themselves on, on dirt roads. And uh, a lot of that can be traced back to the success of the Dirty Kanza. So, you know, it's, it's no, it's not the Giro d'Italia. There's no Paso de Gavia or, uh, you know, beautiful, uh, like, trips around Lake Como, uh, but it is a punishing physical feat into a, uh, unto itself. 
Yeah, I kind of like how it's it's old school. It's uh, self-supporting. You know, there's not a mechanic car driving behind you and ready to swap out your wheel if you get a puncture. I guess my question is, I mean, it, it's self-supporting, right? So uh, riders, you, you have to carry all your own food and water. Are there water stations out there? I mean, if you're out there doing, uh, you know, that many miles on, on a bike, are the guys bringing their own water or do they have water stations at least? Um, they are. There are a handful of stops where you are able to refill, get food, ha- you know, have – if you have mechanical problems, you can attend to it there. I believe there's three of them. It's every 50 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles, 150 miles. And you have to, if you are participating in the Dirty Kansas, you have to have a support team, you know, your dad or your spouse or your buddies, and they man these stations and you stop in there and throw on a new hydration pack or throw some new lube on your bike. Uh, last year at the 100-mile aid station, I saw some gentleman get off of his bike and he was cramping so bad, I could see the muscles in his calves uh, just pulsating. And he had his wife or someone with a massage stick just vigorously rubbing it on his calf muscles as they were just pulsing because he had pushed it a little too hard too early or just maybe his hydration wasn't dialed in. And it was very hot last year. So, you know, you did hear a lot of stories of people cramping up and having hard times and not having enough water. But yeah, it is old school. I mean, it's it's full on like photos of the Tour de France from the early 20th century with guys with tubes draped over them, uh, over their shoulders and, you know, stopping off in a town to fill their water bottles. That's uh, one one of the real appeals to this format of racing. Yeah, we've seen uh, it becoming more professional. I can imagine there must be kind of a, a conflict there between some of the traditionalists of this genre and some of the uh, perhaps athletes coming in to, to race to win with uh, having, uh, you know, probably have perhaps better bikes. I think there was a controversy with a guy trying to use aero bars. Uh, we're also seeing some of the road uh, roadies come in and do these events. What is there a kind of like a cultural uh, friction there between some of the, you know, hardcore gravel riders and maybe some of the other people kind of crossing over? You know, I think there was a year, maybe two years ago when uh, Dirty Kanza and the gravel movement really started to gain steam and go mainstream. And yeah, you know, you've always seen some riders race with aero bars at the Dirty Kanza. And I, I would say a typical Dirty Kanza bike setup now includes packs, but a lot of people do run aero bars. And I don't think there's a ton of uh, you know, there's grumbling about it, but I don't think that people are super pissed about it. But road tactics and road racers coming in and these gravel races starting to feel a bit more like road races. Um, there's definitely some grumbling about it. Last year, I did a story about Team Panaracer, the team that uh, called themselves the Team Sky of gravel racing because they actually raced with road-style team tactics of putting strong guys on the front and trying to thin out the group and trying to chase down attacks. And you know, some of the people in the gravel community were a little bit salty about that. What, my favorite thing about the, the, the Team Sky guy of gravel racing was like a guy who owns a, a junkyard, a guy who runs a uh, smartphone app for Bible verses. Like they all had day jobs, you know, no one was, uh, no one was an actual um, professional racer. They were all, you know, t- sort of day jobbers, which is also part of the appeal of this racing format. But that is going to change because as we're seeing this year, and we've written about it a lot, um, there's pro, actual pro road racers who are coming to Dirty Kansas. EF Education First is sending three riders 
in Taylor Finney, Alex Howes, and Lachlan Morton. I believe there are going to be some riders from Floyd's of Leadville. Of course, Ted King, retired road, professional road racer, will be there. And so as the as the race gets more media attention and more prestige, I do think we're going to see more road races, road racers going there. But what struck me as interesting, and, and Spencer Pollison has a great feature story on this in the gravel issue of Vela News Magazine. That's the March issue. Because he talked to a lot of racers and people in the community about what they thought of the pro roadies coming to race this year. And all of them were very supportive. I think whatever tension there was about road tactics and the professionalization um, has now faded somewhat to just the joy that these races are doing really well. They're getting a lot of attention and that the dirty Kanza and gravel racing in general is becoming, um, yeah, becoming the new high point of American participatory cycling. You know, when you have an event that you've done that you really love and a, a couple years in, like Taylor Finney wants to go do it because the event itself made itself so cool that pro roadies, world tour roadies want to do it. I mean, you know, you got to pat yourself on on the back a little bit. Um, you were part of a grassroots movement that surpassed, in a way, some of the uh, what goes on in mainstream cycling. So that's a long-winded way of saying it. I, I don't get the tension or pushback that people think it's a bad thing that um, Dirty Kanza is attracting pro roadies and getting a little bit more professionalized. Yeah, it's a hard effort, too, out there on the gravel bike for uh, that long of a race. It's not... Uh you know, putting in that effort, it it's probably requires a special kind of training and approach to a race like that. It's not 200 miles on pavement. It's 200 miles on sloshy, gunky road surfaces, inconsistent. And that, that's not easy. No, it's not. And so that's the big question this year is you have three World Tour roadies coming by and they are unquestionably talented, unquestionably strong, have a ton of miles in their legs. On paper, should be the favorites to win. But the thing about Dirty Kanza is, like I said, everyone at some point has a puncture and you have to either fix it yourself or ride it into a tech zone. Everyone, it's so long. To everyone knows roadies can't fix their own flat. Yeah, so it's, you know, <laughs> it's like uh, Taylor Finney's going to be after out there with some like uh, plugs trying to, you know, you know, fix a sidewall. If you tear a sidewall, well, you got to fix it. Sven Ness dropped out last year because he had stomach problems. I think uh, Jens Voigt had, uh, you know, punctures and stuff like that. It took him, I don't know, 15 hours. And, you know, you, you just nobody has a perfect race there. And so the big question is, are these pro roadies going to be able to deal with the headaches and the setbacks that come from mechanical problems, digestion problems, pain, like the the actual effort. You said before, I mean, even Ted King, even the winner is crossing the line and saying, oh my God, at a certain point it became more of a vision quest than an actual um, race. So that is, you know, I'm interested to see how the World Tour guys go. Um, in Spencer's story, he has some great quotes from EF Education First boss, Jonathan Vodders, who is really explaining what EF is doing out there. And, you know, in Vodder's opinion, these guys really aren't going out there to race per se. They're going out there to, I don't know, snap selfies and make videos and, you know, hang out with fans and have an authentic cycling experience, which is fine. Um, my personal opinion is I actually would like to see these guys race to try and win because I think it would actually 
be a much better story that would uplift the race, uplift the community, and uplift a lot of the other racers who are there really training to try and win. You know, it's a very specialized effort to race for 200 miles. And I think that some of the Dirty Kanza racers, you know, a lot of whom have day jobs who um, do this, you know, they they run a junkyard and and train for Dirty Kanza on the side. You know, they, like Colin Strickland, I mean, he's a professional cyclist now, but he like runs a bar and has his whole other life outside of racing. Um, and, and they're training specifically for this effort. And I personally would love to see an actual legitimate, uh, you know, mano a mano race. I, I think it would be a great storyline of Taylor Finney versus the guy who owns a junkyard who trains really hard for Dirty Kanza alone at the front at mile 150, and they and they have to figure it out. So anyway, I would like to see the EF guys take it seriously and really race to win because. I don't know. I just think that that's something that would bring the race a lot of attention. Um, I think it would bring an international attention if Taylor Finney and, you know, Bob the Builder are slugging it out in the last few uh, uh, miles of uh, Dirty Kanza. Um, but, you know, they might go and drink beer and take selfies too. And I guess that's fine. That's fine as well. Well, Hoodie, I got on the phone recently with a gravel racer who's going to be out at Dirty Kansas looking to win, and that is Colin Strickland. Uh, Colin and I, I, we go way back. I actually met him at the Red Hook races. He won four, three or four Red Hook races in a row a few years back. He was great at this fixed gear format, and then he... He transitioned to gravel because gravel was gaining momentum and steam, and now he is a really good gravel racer. Uh, let's hear from Colin Strickland. Okay, right now I am so happy to be joined by Colin Strickland of the Meteor Girodonna Allied Cycling Team. Colin's also sponsored by Red Bull. Uh, Colin's going to be doing the Dirty Kansas this coming weekend, and as, as luck would have it, I have uh, reached out to Colin midway through a bike ride. So Colin, first of all, tell the good people, wh where are you right now and, and what are you doing on your bike? Hey, everybody. Uh, I am down by Town Lake in Austin, Texas on a nice blustery day riding my county around. Uh, the initial reason was to get a rear wheel, rear envy wheel trued up at a bike shop. Um, and I just kind of carried on while they're working on the bike uh, or working on the wheel down off some of my favorite kind of dirt single track trails and just the urban parkland stuff. So just kind of ripping around, trying to stay loose after a big week of training and uh, yeah, rest up and stay active. I love it. It's very authentic that I've caught the Dirty Kanza rider midway through a ride for this interview. So, so Colin, you have Dirty Kanza coming up this coming weekend. We're about five days out. And um, before we get into talking about oh, the race and what it means and gravel cycling, etc., I was hoping you could give us a little insight into what your big volume training has been like for this race. This is, of course, a 205-mile gravel race out in the wilds of Kansas. Like, what's uh, what are some heavy days, heavy wake weeks look like for you? Well, this uh, previous week was certainly probably the biggest week I've ever done on a bike. Uh, for me, that looks like a lot of solo, long rides, um, trying to stay on the pedals the whole time. So, uh, let's see, this last week looked like uh, about 599 miles 
for the OCD folks out there. And uh, 31 hours. Ugh. I think my previous record was about 22 hours on a bike in a week. This is 31. So I have no idea what that'll do to me, but we'll find out. <laughs> that sounds awful. That's a, that's a lot of bike time. Mostly road, or are you throwing some dirt and gravel in there too? I'm throwing as much gravel as I can, but um, riding from Austin is about 45 minutes just to get to some of our nice remote travel roads. So you can carry on from there, but it's always at least 50% tarmac, if not usually 80 or so. But uh, I'll, I go to it. I, I will take the extra mileage to get to the East Gravel Road uh, southeast of Austin. Roll those as long as I can before I have to go home. Colin, I think you're a really interesting figure in uh, the the modern American cycling economy because uh, you and I first crossed paths when you were racing fixed gear and winning a lot of the Red Hook fixed gear races. And then in the in years after that, you created this um, racing format for yourself or a racing calendar for yourself that included uh, local criteriums, fixed gear criteriums, and then a lot of these gravel races, which you have won. And in doing so, you really carved out a place for yourself in the American cycling economy, you have this team that you back. You are sponsored by Red Bull. You are, for all intents and purposes, a professional cyclist, yet you've done so in a very non-traditional way. You know, I was hoping you could take us through the roots and take us through your pathway to creating this, uh, this model for yourself of being, you know, fixed gear crits, road crits, gravel races. Like, how have you built this um, this job for yourself of being a, a modern pro cyclist in America? Well, I like to attribute most of the, if you want to call it success or viability of what I'm doing, to serendipity and luck. Quote, unquote, professional cycling. Luck has a huge, huge role to play. And, you know, you can be good, you can train hard, you can work hard, but you have to be lucky. Anyway, that's a big part of it. But then also just looking stepping back a bit and looking at the landscape of cycling in the U.S. and, you know, kind of making the concession that I'm starting really late, you know, at age 25 when I started this, at the beginning it was, you know, I'm never going to make it to Europe on that trajectory. Not realistic. So, um, you know, what can I get out of cycling in the U.S. and um, just kind of like roll in that direction and also what races do I enjoy um, the most? What kind of events do I want to participate in? And what kind of people do I want to be around? What kind of energy? And that's kind of had me gravitating towards, you know, Tulsa Tough for criteriums and, you know, gravel racing in general. Um, you make it seem so easy, Colin. But you got you to gotta admit, there was some race wins in there. And there was, you know, obviously talent, but a lot of hard work. And I, I remember us in a previous conversation talking about, like, the Austin Driveway Series and how that allowed you to really hone your craft and how, um, you know, you did have this background as an urban cyclist riding fixed gears around, which opened the door for, uh, for you to participate in Red Hook as well. Oh, definitely, yeah. And, but, I mean, again, serendipity is... Um, while I do, you know, I do have a bit of the, you know, I've got the, whatever the cardiovascular system that tunes up really well, that you have to start with that if you want to get to keep pushing your ceiling up in terms of fitness. But yeah, just the fact that I've been riding six gears around throughout my college life and that skill set, you know, kind of fit in perfectly to Red Hook. And then there I was, you know, with kind of ahead of the game when that became a cultural phenomenon. Little subcult subset of cycling. Uh, I had the skill set, so 
<laughs> I just it makes me more thankful when I just think of it as I'm just damn lucky. So. Now, Colin, when you're talking to your sponsors about your team, your race program, and what you and your teammates bring to the table, are they most interested in race victories? Are they more interested in uh, Instagram videos? Like, what are they hoping to get out of their relationship with you? I try not to sell either any single one of those things because, honestly, it's really hard to deliver on you know, all, all, I guess, three of those things at once. So it's really, I try to sell like the whole package. Like we will be doing all of these things. Some of them might be great. Some of them might be okay. And some, yeah, we just, we might completely flop at. Like we just might not get results, but we might shoot a cool, we'll be available to shoot a cool video or something, or, or maybe we'll win the race, but we were too busy preparing to, you know, create any content. Sorry. Or, you know, we only had two guys, you know, our team is really cheap. What do you expect? <laughs> I don't know. Any one, of these, any one of these scenarios. But usually we can deliver on at least two of the three and, you know, focus on that you know, we work for our partners. We're not, this isn't just for its own glory. The, our glory doesn't really do anything for the folks who want to support us. You know, get us these races, help us with logistics, get us sweet wheels, sweet bikes. So, you know, just focus on what they need move their company in the direction they want to go and deliver on that and just be realistic about it. Um, and I think that's what has made it appealing to companies. And, you know, we run a really tight ship. We don't have any support staff, to be honest. We have no mechanic, no director. Um, I mean, we, you know, take our own vehicles, rent our own cars, if necessary, uh, stay at friends' houses, families' houses, whenever we travel, whenever possible. So, you know, keeping budget really reasonable and lean is what allows us to, you know, actually, you know, pay some bills at the end of the day. Now, Colin, the big story is the Dirty Kansas, of course, coming up this coming weekend. Um, this is going to be your first Dirty Kansas, but you've done plenty of uh, other gravel races and big, long uh, mixed terrain races, you know, Belgian waffle ride and, and stuff like that. So what are you expecting to see out at Dirty Kansas in terms of the racing dynamic Having talked to a lot of people who've done this race and having trained and prepared for it yourself, what do you expect uh, this coming Saturday to to look and feel like? To be honest, I have virtually no idea what to expect. Again, I've never done this race. Uh, I've done Gravel World a couple of times, which is long, but the surface is so so tame. It's just kind of a manicured gravel road for the entire 150 miles. This, I, I have no idea. This sounds this sounds wild. And, you know, the travel world fields have been mostly us domestic, you know, domestic elite folks. And uh, looking at the start list of this year's Dirty Kansas, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot more miles in the legs um, and experience, world tour experience. So, honestly, the end of the race, I think, will look a lot like the selection from, you know, a higher level world tour race. But the terrain, I just have no idea. I don't know how that's going to wear on these different riders and their equipment and if it's going to be the, you know, the grassroots hard man who has, the, you know, 50 millimeter tires who ends up, you know, still standing or if it's just going to be the, you know, the world tour guys with the miles in their legs to just persevere based on, you know, time in the saddle. Uh, but I don't know. Hopefully I'll be in the mix somewhere, somewhere in the, between those two variations. And uh, yeah, it's going to be wild. <laughs> 
You mentioned it there earlier, but this year a big storyline around EF is or around uh, Dirty Kanza is the inclusion of these World Tour riders. We have three riders from EF. I just saw the news that two riders uh, from Trek Segafredo will be there: Peter Stetna and Kiel Rainen with uh, Taylor Finney, Lachlan Morton, and Alex Howes from EF. You know, when you heard that there were going to be World Tour riders coming to Dirty Kanza this year, what was your initial reaction? Um, shit, I mean, great. That means it's a legit. It's a legit international competition level race now. So, you know, that's what we've always wanted, right? So, uh, <laughs> the dog has caught the car. Now, we have to figure out what we're going to do. We've latched onto the rear bumper and the car is driving down the road. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's such a long race. Yeah, I have no idea. I think it's great for the, for the, like, adding legitimacy to the race. Now, it's, you know, it's not just, Again, not just the local hero, you know, underground racers. And, you know, we got much harder to win, but Peter Stedner was pretty damn impressive at Belgium Off-Ride and that he never, never dumped his bike. I dumped mine really hard at about mile 95 and broke some equipment and took myself out of the race. Um, but, yeah, that was – it's just hard to say. I mean, I had no idea he was that good of a bike handler, and that was just – Unreal that he got through that entire course, you know, stayed you know, crash free, stayed clean, and then, of course, blew away on the climb. So, yeah, uh, that was impressive. And if they're all as good as him, I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm with you. I think it adds a lot of legitimacy. I think it's really cool. And I personally want to see them race to win. I know there's been some discussion about whether the EF riders are going to hang out and take photos with fans or whether they're going to indeed, um, you know, push it and, and, and push for the win. And I personally would like to yeah, see I them, don't, I, you know, I'd say a win, win at this event. A win at this event is probably one of the biggest opportunities for any of them for the entire year for like, you know, race win. Yeah. That one that they can win. I think they will try to. I, that's just my guess. I were them. Are you expecting to see riders, you know, world tour riders out there really giving it their all? I expect, yes. Uh, said that was definitely giving it all at Belgium all right. You can't half-ass these races. I'm not going to half-ass it. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I've had similar power numbers to any of these guys for the same length of time. I don't have the, you know, not at the same stage, but so yeah, it's, I think she'll be going for it. And then, you you know, now you've got them competing against each other. So it's going to be a, be a, uh, a nice, be a good brawl. What, uh, how will you define success at uh, Dirty Kansas this year? Damn, I think I'll have to look back on my day and just make sure that um, that'll, that'll kind of be an in hindsight definition, I believe. It's hard to define success from beforehand for me, you know have a good experience hopefully hopefully i don't make any any stupid mistakes that's what you know i was pretty pretty disappointed at belgium all right hey going into it with two and a half weeks of bronchitis being kind of flat but then you know i dumped my bike into a rock and took myself out that was i was following a wheel too close on the technical dirt section and just that was it took myself out of the race and i also took out sam anderson which was you know he was right behind me which was really depressing ruin his race with my mistake. So honestly, that was, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope I don't take myself out. And more importantly, I hope I don't ruin someone else's race with my you know, stupidity beforehand. Do you feel like you're capable of winning this race? 
if there was a race of this nature that suited me, I think this does suit me really well. Um, yes, to be honest, yes. Do I think I can win this against these guys? I think it's possible, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not placing bets on myself. I'm just not, not betting against myself, nor am I betting for myself. <gasps> Definitely not ruling myself out, so. Well, I'm going to go on uh, Unibet.com to see what the Dirty Kansas odds are uh, to see if I can place a bet on you, Colin. I don't know if that might be uh, one of the more obscure, like page two, page three cycling oh, yeah. bets on the. You know what? I'll get. I'll put. I got five on it. If I'm on there. <laughs> well, Colin, we will let you get back to your bike ride of chores, but uh, really appreciate your time and wishing you the best of luck at Dirty Kansas. We'll catch up with you after the race. Awesome. Thanks, Fred. Well, you know, it's going to be an interesting race out of Derry, Kansas. I will not be there this year, but we are sending a contingent from Bella News, including Spencer Paulison, the illustrious return of Spencer, who will be riding the race, coming back and telling us all about how it is. But, Hoodie, you and I will be linking up a week from now to talk about this final week of the Giro. Uh, so, you know, put your money where your mouth is, Hoodie. How do you see this Giro playing out? Who's going to win? Oh, gosh. Had you asked me a couple of days ago, I had a pretty pretty good vision of what's going to happen. I think it's, I think Giro Surprise is still in the cards for this Giro, the way it's mapped out with some of these hard stages, some rough, uh, rough weather ahead of us. That time trial at the end is going to sting. I, 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 I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go right now with Nibali. I don't, his, my heart is not there, but I just see Nibali racing a pretty smart race still. And he's looking very, very good. And he has that experience and he has kind of the uh, home road advantage. And I think Nibali is going to pull off the win, even though my heart is going with Carapaz. I think Carapaz could actually still do it. But I, I, kinda, I see KG, KG grumpy Nibali uh, pulling off one more win. He's definitely lurking in the wings right now. I was going to say Nibali, too. You have taken my pick, so I'm going to choose someone else. I, I, You know what? I think Roglic is going to do it. I think he is very strong. I think he's very smart. Um, he has let Carapaz gain time for a reason, and I think it's because he has his eyes on Nibali, and I think that's wise. So my pick, I still say that uh, Roglic keeps it close enough in this final week of climbing so that on the final time trial, he's able to blaze a fast time trial where he does not need teammates. He does not need a team car that may or may not be stopped on the side of some beautiful vista so his team director can relieve himself. Uh, it's just him, the wind, and the, bice, the bicycle. And so I think Roglic pulls it out. But that's the great thing about the Giro is you never really know until the, the last couple days. So with that... Andrew Hood, I will bid you adieu. And as always, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelNews.com. Subscribe to the VelNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VelNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash VelNews. The VelNews podcast is produced by VelNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and the opinions expressed on the VelNews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, it's the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing soul drums. <laughs>